So we're in 1 Samuel again today. We've been reading through a section of 1 Samuel. It's called the Ark Narrative, which is the story of the Ark of the the Covenant. Uh, And uh, the story of the Israelites having just fallen apart so bad as the people of God that they... And, 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 and having their, their religion and their, their practice of religion become so like the nations that surrounded them that when they got into bad trouble and they needed the help of God, they just had really, they couldn't do anything other than what the nations do. And so they grabbed the Ark of the Covenant like a talisman, like a magic trick, and rolled out into battle with it and lost the Ark. Uh, and it's been, last time we talked about this, last week, about how the Ark of God rolled through the Philistine territory in a victory tour all its own. And today we're going to talk about uh, the Ark of God being returned by the Philistines to its place. Get this thing out of here. And it brings up a, a really important question. It brings up a super important theological question, but it's even more really a practical theological question that we all feel in one way or another, and that is, is God really safe? I want you to think about that as we read through the text and as we go through the sermon today. Um, This is a long reading, so I'm not going to ask you to stand today, but would you please all together listen intently as we read the Word of God. This is God's inerrant Word. Uh, From 1 Samuel chapter 6. So the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, and they said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, what shall, with what shall we send it to its place? And then they said, if, they send, if you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering, and then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and your lords. And so you must make images of your tumors and images of of the mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel, and perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land." Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? And after he had dealt severely with them, they did not send. Uh, did, after he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away? And they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and the yoke of the cow and yoke the cows to the cart. But take their calves home away from them, and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side. And at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. And then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. And the men did so and took two milk cows, yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. 
They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping the wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. They split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And these are the golden tumors that the Philistine returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone besides which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Bethshemesh. And he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Bethshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, when we read this story, read other stories surrounding it, it can paint a frightening picture of you. Uh... And we don't know how to deal with that sometimes, Lord. What we think should be true and right about God is so often seems to be contradicted by what we see you doing in the Old Testament, Lord. And even in the New Testament. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to overcome our natural fallen inclinations about who we think you should be. And we pray that you would help us to see who you are. Because even though if at first that seems like a scary thing, when we do that, it always turns out that you are more beautiful than we ever could have imagined. So help us to have that kind of faith, Lord. To seek to know what you say about yourself and to trust that over and above what we want to believe about you, Lord. And we especially we pray that you would help us to see the beauty of Jesus in this story. Um, we love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey uh, your perfect word as you promise to beautify us, your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that was a long reading. <laughs> 
<coughs> Philistines, as we a couple you know, last week we read the Philistines, uh, as, as, as the ark came to each one of their cities, plague broke out. Thousands of people died, and the men who didn't die broke out in plagues. It was probably best guess. Uh, is that it was bubonic plague, it was connected with mice. We don't know for sure, but it's some sort of plague that was deadly, killed lots of people, um, and caused lots of suffering. And here at the beginning of this story, we see the Philistines just doing everything they can to get rid of this ark. They want to get this thing out of the way. And um, on Easter, on Easter, I mentioned to you with, uh, an apologist that I admired. Uh, a guy who got in a conversation or who was in a debate with an atheist. The atheist was trying to say that the death of innocent children was a proof against God. And rather than running to the corner and trying to cover that fact up, instead he retorted by saying, you are not giving God enough credit. As a matter of fact, God is responsible for the deaths of every man, woman, and child who has ever lived. And that's our starting point. That's our starting point to try and understand uh, God and also this text. And, and in light of that, I want to call your attention um, to something in the story that we've just been reading, this whole ark narrative from chapter 4 when the Philistines take the ark. Uh, in just these three chapters out of the whole Bible, I want to point out something that's rather uncomfortable for us, and that is the body count. Just think about this. Starting at verse, in just these three chapters, starting at chapter 4, in the first battle of effect against the Philistine, 4,000 people die. The second battle of effect, 30,000 people die. The Philistine raid on Shiloh, which we know happened from Psalm 76, an unknown amount of people died. Given the size of ancient Near Eastern cities at the time, 6,000, 8,000 people, and the armies tended to wipe everything out in their path, that would be a good guess. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant then goes into Philistine territory and it goes on its three-city victory tour. We also don't know how many people died through that, but a good guess based on plague mortality rate and Philistine population at the time would be maybe 5,000 people. And then this incident at Beth Shemesh with the Israelites. At the end, God strikes down 70 people at the end. And there's a textual variant that says he struck down 50,070 people. Probably not. I don't think there was that many people in Beth Shemesh, but maybe. Maybe. And so, anyways, I want to point out just this uncomfortable fact that we're talking about here is somewhere between 44,000 and 94,000 people dead, either directly or indirectly, at the hand of God. That's what we just read. Does that make you feel a little squirmy? <laughs> I mean, what do we say about that? What can you say about that? What do you feel about What does it make you feel like when you think about it? Does it make you feel uneasy? It should. Uh, there are a lot of people, people who have read, it, read and studied these texts well, they look at this kind of thing and they say for what they believe to be self-evident reasons, they say, I would never, I could never worship a God like that. 
And some people, even Christians, have a hard t- Christians too, especially, have a hard time with this text and solution. And we, and, we, and we dig and scrape to find solutions that might mitigate what the text is really saying. It brings up seeming uncomfortable dichotomies between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. How is the God of the Old Testament seemed like such a God of war and the God of the New Testament seems like such a God of love. How do those things work together? I think reading forward to Revelation 19 helps a lot with that problem, but it still is an uncomfortable tension that we feel when we're reading through the Bible. And a lot of people criticize this and criticize the God that's presented in it. What can we say? What do we say? Because it looks like For all we can see, for all we can tell in this text, based on the fact that we see probably 50,000 bodies directly or indirectly killed by God in three chapters, that God is, at the very least, dangerous. He is a dangerous God. And that idea contradicts just about every one of our natural inclinations of what we think God should be. Culturally, uh, just in every way, uh, everything that we want to believe to be true about God is contradicted by the sense that God is dangerous. And we think that that's dangerous God. That's like some sort of ancient mythological stuff. No one, no reasonable person for a hot second would come to think that God is dangerous. Well, no one that is except the Philistines and the Israelites and the prophets and the apostles and Jesus and the church fathers and the consensus of every major theologian in the history of the church. But we're Americans and we have iPhones, so we know better, right? <laughs> well, we don't. The truth is, truth is that God is a dangerous God. And not just dangerous, he is extremely dangerous. That's a true reality about God, but that's not the whole picture of him. There's another side of the picture is that God is love, that God is merciful. And that means that for any given person, God is either one of two things. God is either a dangerous judge or God is a beautiful father. And it all depends on one simple thing that we're going to talk about tonight. And that's the basic outline we're going to go through, that God is either a dangerous judge or a beautiful father. Let's look at the first before, before the first part, I want to look at just what God is and how do we know what God is. Briefly, before we get into God is dangerous. You know, every week, every week during communion here, I say, for any visitors here who might not be Christians, I say, if you, if you pray and you ask God to, sh- to reveal himself to you and you want to know who he really is more than you want to tell him who he should be, that he'll answer that prayer. But that is a really... That is a much harder thing to do than we realize. It's a very hard thing to do. And that's because most people go about knowing spiritual truth like this. This is how most people go about it. We evaluate, we look at an idea, we evaluate an idea, and then we evaluate it based on 
where we decide whether it's true based on these criteria. If I agree with it, if it sounds reasonable, if I resonate with it, that's a popular one. Uh, if, I, if I feel good about it, or more increasingly, if it makes me feel good, those are the kind of criteria that most people use to evaluate truth. Um, in our culture, we're kind of like in a midway point between rationalism and the, the thought that what I think uh, to be true is true and existentialism, which is what I feel to be true is true. And so what happens is, what ends, what ends up is, R.C. Sproul used to call the theological smorgasbord or the spiritual belief smorgasbord. We kind of go through the lineup of life going, forgiveness, I like that. Reincarnation, I like that. Love of God, I like that. That sounds good. Uh, superhuman powers, I like that. Or whatever. And we go through the smorgasbord and we collect all these ideas and then we try to synthesize them or systematize them into a belief system based on our creativity. And that's like celebrated by our culture. People actually celebrate how creative you are in coming up with your own ideas about what the supernatural reality must be. Um, and so the bottom line is that your reason or your feelings or a combination of those becomes the most reliable way of discerning spiritual truth. But how do we know? How do we know those things are reliable? On the other hand, what the Christian faith has always said uh, about how to know what is truth is totally different. We don't start with what we think is right. We don't start with what we feel is right. Instead, we look at first the prophetic record that God has always, when he wants to prove himself to be the only true God throughout the entire books of the Bible, he always points to the fact that he has been able to tell the end from the beginning. And so we look at the prophetic record, which is able to empirically prove that the source of the Bible is supernatural, personal, creative, and intelligent by definition, and therefore Whatever the source, whatever the supernatural, intelligent, personal source behind the informational Bible is, it is more reliable than our creative ideas, however brilliant they may be. And also, the Bible points to the resurrection of Jesus, the empirical evidence for the resurrection of Christ that shows that all of that prophetic record is pointing towards one ultimate revelation of who God is. And then... We do the hard work of studying the text to defeat our own bias, what we want to believe about God, and instead figuring out what God has said about himself. And then, once we do that, then we systematize that knowledge according to what God has really said. And in that process, in the discipline and the hard work of that process, we get much closer to what God is really all about based on who he says he is not what we want him to be. And here's why that's so hard. And you all know this. We all experience, even if you're not a theologian, you know this to be true. The reason that is so hard is because when we do that, it contradicts many, if not most, of our natural inclinations. It totally contradicts what we think about God, what we want to believe about God. It contradicts what we feel to be true. It is hard and, but listen, that's the point. That's what it's created to do. That was God's intention for it. 
God's intent was to show us how far off we really are from reason, from truth, from emotional righteousness, from reality. The revelation of God dethrones us and shows us what we really are in contrast to God, who is the foundation of all goodness and beauty and truth. And that's a hard thing to come to grips with. So when people see what the text says about God, how badly it contradicts our natural inclinations of what we think and feel to be right, the natural inclination is to run or to get away from it. And that's what we see happening in this story, throughout this story. Part of the reason that we have such a struggle with the revelation is from the body count and from everything that we see in the text, that God is presented as a dangerous God. This is part two. He is presented as a dangerous God. I want to point out there's three people. There's three groups of people in this story. There are the Philistines. There are uh, the Israelites of Beth Shemesh. And then there's a third group of people we're going to talk about in a minute who are the Israelites who are in the field of Joshua or Yeshua. Um, But what I want you to see is this, that most of these people, at least the first two groups, the Philistines and the Israelites, they have the same reaction to the Ark of the Covenant, which is the Ark of the Covenant at that time was the visible representation of the presence of God. And every, these two groups, most of these people that we see, they have the very same reaction to the presence of God, which is get this thing away from me. Now, why is that? Listen, listen to what they say. Listen to what happens. The Philistines, Ark comes into their territory, plague breaks out, probably 5,000 killed by God's present danger. And their solution this is what they say. What shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Tell us what we shall send in its place. In other words, translation, get this thing away from us. Get God away from us. Now listen to the Israelites. Israelites of Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh, by the way, means house of the sun. I wonder what they were doing there. Um, the danger, at the end of this story, God strikes down 70 people, Right? Now, we don't know what the timeline is for this, but it's most likely what's happened is this is after the fact. This is a bit of time has passed from when the ark came and sacrifices were made and the ark has been set up in the field and left to be some sort of tourist attraction and people are coming and Googling at it. And God strikes down 70 men killed by God's presence. And then listen to this. In verse 20, most important verse in this passage, the men of Beth Shemesh say, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? They say almost the same thing the Philistines say. Same reaction. Get away from us. And that's been the project of the modern world for the last 400 years. And faced to with, uh, at the very least, our subconscious knowledge of the danger of God, we have engaged for 400 years in coming up with clever arguments to why it is that God doesn't really exist. And that is our way of getting God away from us. In the church, too, the modern church, a lot of people look at these texts and they say, 
uh, that can't be how God is. We have to get this God away from us. And they start putting different versions of God that are more in line with our natural inclinations and our natural feelings about what is right. But what is it in this story and throughout the Bible that makes these people and makes all of us want to get God away from us? The answer is it's His holiness. It's His holiness. Now look, when we say holy, I think holy, I think of somebody I know, like my grandmother, who is a super pious Christian. We think holy, we think of it in human terms, mostly, or we think, maybe you think, maybe you're more theologically minded and you think about it in the fact, in the sense of the absolute perfections of God, but it's much more than that. This is holy, and I mean really holy. This isn't holy like your Aunt Margaret holy. This is holy like nuclear fire holy. This is holy like consuming fire holy. This is holy like the sun, like a droplet of water approaching the sun. The kind of holiness of God that um, is unbridled power and moral perfection that cannot preserve the existence of moral corruption. It's not that God wills to strike out and kill the Philistines. It's that God's presence, his, the reality of who he is, is such that he cannot. Moral corruption, defilement, it cannot survive in his presence any more than a droplet of water could approach the sun without being evaporated. Now we have a hard time grasping these really hard ideas about God, about his holiness, uh, what the author of Hebrews calls the consuming fire of God, uh, what the Bible consistently calls the fear of God. We try to downplay that by saying it's just reverence. It's just reverence. But... uh, I, the closest I've ever gotten to understanding what this means, understanding the power and the holiness of God and what that is like is from waterfalls. There's been two, there's been two incidences in my life where I had close encounters with waterfalls. Once on our honeymoon, we traveled up this river to the secret waterfall and we, we were walking up to it. It's beautiful. It's falling down maybe 80 feet from the cliff above and it's coming into a pool and I'm thinking it's a good, I'm, I'm going to go up and swim up to it and take it like a shower under it because it was so beautiful. So I swam up and swam up underneath it and came up and it hit me like a truck. The water was so heavy it almost broke my neck and Nisa was like, she was like, what did I just get myself into? What kind of an idiot, what kind of an idiot does that? Second time was on our trips to Yosemite there's a waterfall called Nevada Falls, which is just billions of gallons of water flying over the edge of a cliff. And um, beautiful as you approach it. Water, you know, this mist is coming up, rainbows in the mist. It's, you know, talk about the glory of God it's, and, the, and, the, and the, what the prophets must have seen in the temple with the Shekinah glory. It's got to be close to that. 
beautiful from a distance. Uh, but one time at the end of the hike, I got to go around the side, and there's an outcropping with metal bars, just like this, metal bars around here, and the river is right there. And billions of gallons of water are pumping over the edge of this cliff. And I have never been so scared in my life. I was on solid granite rock. There was no way I could fall off. There were solid steel bars all around. I couldn't fall over. But I was, walk, I was walking up to the bar, like I'm not even kidding, like this. Because the power of that water was so terrifyingly real right there. I knew what would happen to me if I treated it with disrespect. If I played with it. If I tried to approach it in an unsafe or unwise manner. There's been over 1,700 deaths in Yosemite Valley in just the last century that we know of, and many, if not most of them, are water deaths, including a lot of waterfall deaths. And it freaked me out, the power of that waterfall, right? Now, the only thing, what was making me safe? The only thing that made me safe was that that waterfall was consistent. It was going to do, it was doing what it did there, but I knew it wasn't going to reach out and grab me. And as long as I approached it in the right way, in the safe way, I didn't have anything to fear from the waterfall, even though it was still terrifying. And that's kind of how God is. I mean, we want to think about God as like fluffy and all love and embracing us with his spirit, and that's all true. For those of us in Christ, God has enveloped us as his children and poured out his love upon us, but that does not change the fact of God being holy terror and power beyond our wildest imagination and holy in the sense that it, he cannot be in the presence of sin. And so what that means is we accept the God who is, we can accept the God who is and understand that that is his nature and his character But we can also understand that there is a way to approach him. Is God safe? No. That's the answer to that question. No, he is not safe. But can we be safe with God? Yes, we can be safe with God. And it's all about, it's all about the approach. And this is how God can be, be a beautiful father to us. The third group of people in this story are the people of Beth Shemeth who happen to be in the field of Joshua. Listen, listen, to what, listen again to what the Israelites of Beth Shemeth say when the ark, uh, after the demise of the 70 people. They say, who is, able, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Now, sometimes the characters in the Bible, they say a whole lot more than they even know they're saying. Listen to what, this is a, a more literal translation of the last half of what they just said. It says, unto whom will this holy God go up from upon us? Now, listen to the difference to what the Philistines say. The Philistines say, to what place can we send this off to? They want to send it Where? But the men of Beth Shemesh, they're saying to whom or upon whom can this judgment of God that has come upon us be sent to? 
And that is a very good question. Listen to the story. Here's what happens. People are in the field. They're in the field of Joshua. They see the ark coming and they rejoice. In the middle of the field, there's this great rock that's called out by the narrator for some reason. The Levites, they show reverence to the ark, pulling it down, and then they make sacrifices, not just the cows, but they make sacrifices all day to the Lord, rejoicing. And what happens? Does plague break out? No. Do people die? No. Do people's faces melt? No. It's characterized, and they are characterized as rejoicing in the presence of God. Now, what's this story really all about? What is that section really all about? It's telling us about the approach. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us, what we, how we must approach God, and what happens when we do. The field. Well, so you know, you've already like probably keyed into this. Joshua is Yeshua, which is Jesus' name, right? Okay, that's a clue. But really what it says is it's the field of Yehoshua, which means in Hebrew, the field of the, they're reaping in the field of the Lord's salvation. And the ark comes into this presence. There's a, the great rock of our salvation in the middle of the field, and they make the animal sacrifices. And what does the animal sacrifice mean or point to? Well, Leviticus says that the animal sacrifices were a ransom a ransom, a criminal penalty ransom, meaning that the animal would die instead of you to satisfy the terms of justice. And that's what the cross was all about for us. God has judged Jesus for our sins so that he would never again have to judge us. And so that's the approach. This is telling us those who are in the field of Yeshua, those who are reaping in the field of the Lord's salvation, approached the presence of God through the ransom of sacrifice and it resulted in rejoicing. And once they made that approach that way, look what happens. Everything changes. Everything changes. This transformation occurs where having been judged in Christ, now God is no longer a dangerous judge and he becomes a beautiful father. He's no longer a nuclear fire, but a nuclear reactor who is able to protect us with his power who is able to serve us, who is able to be merciful to us, who is able to guide us and direct us, who is able to discipline us in our sin, which is also his mercy, who is able to care for us in every way. David, in Psalm 32, pulls this all out beautifully. He says, when I was holding on to my sin, I was like an animal dying in the desert, and the heat of the sun was sucking all the moisture and life out of me. But the minute I confessed my sin, the minute I made the approach to God the way he has provided, all of a sudden that same son becomes a shelter. And God surrounds him with songs and shouts, shouting songs of deliverance and salvation. And the same is true for us. All of that power of God that is so unapproachable and so destructive then becomes our protection as God becomes a beautiful father towards us. And I want to ask you this as we close out. Which one of those visions of God is more expressive of a God of love? Is it the ambiguous God who co-signs all of your dangerous behavior and destructive behavior? Is it the ambiguous God 
who when you look at his character is really a whole lot like you, loving what you love and hating what you hate? Or is it the God who is necessarily so holy in his character that he cannot look at sin and yet to save us he incarnated it suffered with us and then died so that we might live I think that's a picture of a much more loving God and I'd invite you to think about that as well so what's this what's the what do we what do we take away from this uh, first if you are, aren't a Christian if you are outside you need to get in <laughs> God is a consuming fire. God is a nuclear fire. You cannot approach God in any other way than he has given to us. But he has given us a way. And that is this astonishing miracle. He has made a way for us to be protected from his holiness and to benefit from it. And we want you to take it. If you're inside the church, the struggle continues. I wish I could say... You wouldn't believe me if I did, because you know different. I wish I could say that once we become Christians, we stop struggling with this battle within us, within our own hearts and our natural inclinations of our mind that want, to, want things to be how we want them to be. We all struggle with that. We have this raging war within us between what we want to be true and between what God is revealing to us through His Spirit to be true. You know that. Paul knew that, I know that, that's the reality, and that's okay, because we know who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We struggle in that, in victory. We don't struggle in fear. We don't struggle from a place of, oh, God is mad at me. We don't struggle with it from a place of, I must overcome this, or God is, I'm going to lose out. We struggle in this sense of victory, knowing everything that God has given to us in Christ And so we can struggle against our sin while we simultaneously rest in Jesus knowing that he is one for us in eternal salvation. And in the midst of it, God promises to comfort us and to help us. And we know that he's good and we know we can be trusted even in the things that are really hard, even in the things that we don't even understand. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, if we really think about it hard, we think about it hard, and for you to be God, those things must be true about you. If you weren't morally perfect, you wouldn't be God. You'd be something less than God. If you weren't perfect in holiness, you would be less than God. If you weren't absolute justice, you would be less than God. What bothers us about it is what it says about us. But the beauty of your word, Lord, is that it consistently tells us that what's true about us isn't even the point. You know all about us. You know how sinful we are. You know how sinful we are way more than we know. The point of it is that you want us to know how much you love us in Jesus, and that you sent him to be our solution. And so, Lord, we pray that we would lean into him. We would not lean into our own understanding or what we feel is right, but we would do the hard work of learning what you say and trusting 
what you say to be true, even when it contradicts what we want, Lord. That is faith working in love. We pray that you would flood us with a sense of your love for us and in gratitude for that, uh, we would serve you. And through that, as we trust you, you would transform our minds and our hearts to be more like you and more like Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.